Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Okay. Today we're going to return to the book of Philippians, and we're going to be in chapter 2 and cover verses 12 through 18 how to work out your own salvation. How to work out your own salvation. I want to begin by just reading the scripture for you. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I, may, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. What if I were to promise you that I would give you everything that I own? You can have everything that I own. It may not be that much, but... But here's the thing, you have to live a good life. You have to obey every law of society. You have to keep the speed limit. You have to be nice to all the people. You can't, you can't complain uh, and, and, and argue with your family members or with friends or neighbors or the waitress or waiter at the restaurant. Um, you have to pay your taxes exactly, correctly. You have to do everything right, and then I'll give you everything that I own. Well, how do you feel that, about that kind of promise? Well, at first it sounds like good news, but then when you start thinking about it, you start thinking, can I do that? And the moment you mess up, well, you doubt that you're ever going to see anything of my inheritance towards you. And it raises all kinds of questions. What is it exactly I have to do or should do? How much of it? And so forth. That's one of the problems I think we people face when they read this passage here when it says to work out your own salvation. Um, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that we have to work for our salvation? Because that's the way a lot of people teach that. And many people around the world try to do exactly that. They try to work for their salvation and earn it by doing their good works, by being baptized, by going to church, by reading the Bible, obeying the Bible, and so forth. That is such a large part of the world, even the Christian world. They're trying to work for their salvation. So they'll either put works on the front end of their salvation as a condition for salvation, or put them later at the last part of your life and say that if you didn't have good works, then you never really were saved to begin with. So you were unsaved. But works becomes consequential or essential either at the beginning or at the end of life, such that your salvation depends on what you do. 
Well, I wonder what you would say to that. And I wonder what you'd say to me if I were to promise you everything that I had if you only keep the law, behave yourself for the rest of your life. Well, that's kind of tough, isn't it? You probably doubt whether you would make it or get anything of mine. But what if God made the same promise? And uh, he said, I will give you salvation as a free gift, but you have to keep it by doing good works or by not doing bad things. And then we're going to check up with you on the, at the end of your life, and we're going to see how you did. We're going to see how you used that salvation that I promised you. Well, how would you feel about that? Perhaps you, ha you would have the question, well, God, then how much do I need to do? And did I do enough? I know people that did better than me, but yet I know that I did better than many people. So you see, there can be a lot of confusion attached to this passage. But what we need to remember is that in the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to a church, a group of believers. He never questions their salvation. He's telling them how to conduct themselves in the midst of adversity because we find chapter 1, talk, he's in prison for one thing, and then there's adversaries out there, and uh, they're criticizing him and his followers. So he's talking about how to live in the midst of that kind of um, opposition and persecution. And he's also saying that they need to have harmony or unity within the church because there was disputes going on there. And the key to unity, we find out, is having the mind of Christ, which is having a humility of mind that puts others as more important than ourselves. And it's a sacrificial mindset in life that puts others first. And obedience becomes an important word in the book of Philippians as it comes out today in verse 12. Uh, living obediently to God means that we treat others well and we have the mind of Christ. Well, let's talk about verses 12 and 13 first because that's where people get confused about the idea of working for your salvation. Now, but I want you to notice that he doesn't say, uh, he first of all, he calls them beloved. Let's just go through it. He calls them beloved, which obviously means that they are saved. He's not telling them how to be saved. And as you have always obeyed, so they've had an obedient lifestyle and track record as far as he's concerned. Um, they've been a good church as, in general uh, when he was with them. And, and even now when he's in prison, he gets good reports about their progress in the Christian life. But he says, even though you're doing well, I want you to work out your own salvation. Well, what we notice here is he does not say that he wants them to work for their salvation, right? He doesn't say he wants them to work toward their salvation or into their salvation. He wants them to work out their salvation, okay? Their own salvation. So, in fact, he calls it their own salvation, indicating that he knows they are saved. But what he wants to do with their salvation, he wants them to do with their salvation, is work it out. So what does he mean by that? The word work out mean, means to bring something to realization, to realize the benefits of something or to bring it to completion. 
He wants them to realize all the benefits of the salvation that they already possess. Now, at the time of salvation, when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior for eternal life, He gives us, uh, of course, a new life, a new birth, a new position before God, all of that which is included in salvation, a big package deal of many, many things, many blessings, the grace of God, uh, you know, from the sealing of the Holy Spirit to being placed into the body of Christ and so forth, and we could go on and on. All of that is in our salvation. But how do we let what the blessings that are in us, how do we let that out so that other people can see and benefit from it? I think that's the point of what he's saying. And he wants us, he wants to, us to be Christ-like in our thinking and in our conduct. And so that brings the salvation to full fruition. That is the salvation that is already in us. In other words, we use the illustration of an inheritance. God has given us a gift, a large gift in salvation. Now he wants to see how we spend it. When we come to know Christ as Savior, it's like winning the lottery. It's more than we ever would, could dream of. And yet the question is, how are we going to spend it? We're not going to just leave it in the bank. That would be irresponsible stewardship. We're to share it with others and use it for good. And I think that's what he's talking about when he talks about working out your salvation. Letting the blessings in us out so that others can see. Um, now, that's one way of understanding but, uh, the word salvation here, but he has used the word salvation previously in verse 19 and verse 28 to talk about a deliverance uh, with a victorious attitude over his enemies. He talked about himself and he talked about how he wants his readers to be delivered in front of the adversaries with a victorious attitude. So part of working out their salvation here, I believe, is to speaks of just having this victorious attitude on display for their enemies and their uh, accusers there in Philippi. That's one of the benefits of the salvation that they already have, is it gives us a victorious position, and we can live victoriously in spite of persecution and opposition. You notice also, he says, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. So each person has a responsibility, their own possession, but their own responsibility to use it responsibly. Uh, they can't depend on Paul. He's in prison. You know, some people think that they can live the Christian life vicariously through, through a, a, a friend or a relative. Or uh, Sometimes when I'm witnessing and sharing the gospel to people, they'll say something like, oh, yeah, my, my brother, he's a preacher. Oh, yeah, my sister, she, uh, she reads the Bible all the time. I don't know what they're trying to say to me except something like, uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of in there because of my brother or my sister. But it doesn't work that way. Salvation has to be our own. God doesn't save us vicariously through those that we know. Um, we have our own, and we come to know Christ, we have our own blessings, and we have both blessings on the inside uh, his indwelling power. We 
also have blessings on the outside with uh, God's power. So work out your own salvation. Uh, you're responsible for it. Paul can't be responsible for it. And others can't do it for you. And then he says, with fear and trembling. Now, Paul has used the expression fear before. In 2 Corinthians 5.11, he talks about how he, knowing the fear of God, he persuades men. So there's a sense in which this accountability should give, give us a sense of reverence and, and awe towards God, knowing that he will ask for an account for our lives. So out of respect and reverence and awe for God, we know that we will give an account to him about our lives, and that's why Paul is saying with fear and trembling, God is going to ask us someday, you know all that I gave you in, in salvation, that all that grace I gave you? How'd you do with that? How'd you spend it? How'd you use it? I think that's the sense behind this idea of um, fear and trembling. And his reason is because it's God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, God is in each of us who are saved, and he is pulling us in one direction. And if we resist and go in the other direction, well, we ought to worry about that. There's consequences for resisting his lead and not obeying him. So God is working in us, Paul says, <clears throat> to warn us and, and actually accomplish things for his good pleasure, just because it pleases him when we follow his lead. And as you know from personal experience, you and I both have these polar opposite motivations in our lives. We want to please God. This is like Romans 7. We want to please God and we know the right things to do and yet the flesh wants to pull us in a different direction. And, and when we follow the flesh, there, there's consequences to that when we give an account to God. But when we follow God's direction and leading into righteousness and holiness in our life, there's great blessing and great comfort and great joy because it pleases God. It's for his good pleasure. So he goes on then um, in verse 14, to do all things without complaining and grumbling. The word complaining is sometimes translated murmuring. And um, you know when we read the Old Testament and we see the accounts of Israel in the wilderness, how they murmured or complained about their diet or about being left out there without water or something. They're always complaining about something. Um, and that complaining lost some of their privileges and brought God's judgment on them, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. So uh, he, he discourages them from murmuring and disputing, or disputing, arguing, uh, could be arguing with God, could be arguing with others, could be inter-questioning inter or debating uh, about what you should do, what the truth is, you know, if you've been a parent with children, or you might remember your own childhood, there's always something to argue with your parents about, always disputing something with them, and some, sometimes just 
you're in a bad mood, you didn't get enough sleep, you're going to be argumentative. We all know that, and now you see it in your grandchildren. But he says not to, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless. And he connects the idea of being blameless and harmless with not arguing and disputing. I think the reason is because when we argue and dispute, you know, we're not always going to be right. We're not always going to be We might think we're always right, but we're not always right. And so if you're not right, then you're not blameless. So the more we argue, the more we dispute, the more we are taking the chance that we will not be blameless and harmless. And that, but he wants us to be that way. And so I think what he's saying, keep your mouth shut and you'll live a pretty harmless and blameless life when it comes to things you don't agree with. And he wants us to be harmless and blameless as children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So here he's picturing his readers as children of God in the midst of a very dark and wicked and perverse generation. Now, no doubt that in Paul's days, even in the city of Philippi, a Roman colony, things were pretty bad. Uh, the Romans were corrupt in many, many ways. They worshipped idols, emperor worship. Um, they had their sexual cults and, and sexual practices and pedophilia. I mean, it was very bad. And, and Paul was saying he wants them to be different in this crooked and perverse generation. Now, things were bad then. I don't know that they've got any better sense. I was looking at some old notes when I preached this message about 30 years ago, and I was noting that some of the indications of our wicked and perverse generation was uh, arguing about whether there should be uh, condoms in the public schools handed out or uh, uh, women's rights was a big issue. Uh, but now the issue is not condoms in school. It's about pornography in school. If you listen to the news even this week, pornography on the library shelves. And now the issue is not women's right, rights, but whether you can even use the word woman at all about somebody. You can't identify people by sex. And abortion 30 years ago was debated whether it was right or wrong. Now it's glorified and videos are making where people are bragging about it as a good thing. So, yes, we've always lived in perverse and wicked times, but it does seem to be getting worse and worse as we go through time and life. And so even more true are his words for us today, that we would be a gener uh, 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 in this crooked and perverse generation, shine like lights in the world. When we stand up against those who disagree with us morally and on these issues, we become lights. We become lights. Another way of saying that is maybe is that we become targets. People don't like the light, like a cockroach doesn't like the light, they'll scurry off into a dark corner. When you shine a light on a dark generation, uh, they don't like that. And so Christians become targets for them uh, in our culture and many other cultures around the world. So he wants us to be lights, though, in the world. Not apart from the world, but we are in the world, and he recognizes that. 
And in fact, above he talked about in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So <clears throat> we're not, he's not preaching separation here where we go isolate ourselves and live up on a mountaintop somewhere. But right where you are in your workplace, your neighborhood, your schools, um, right where you are in the marketplace, where you see the wickedness around you, the billboards, the signs, the music, the people, the way they dress, in that setting, you be a light in the midst of that. Think of the Middle Ages where some monks thought they could separate from the world by living on top of a pole. Stimon Stilettis was probably the one best known, and he lived on top of a pole, I think, for years to separate from the world. Uh, it kind of sounds kind of silly, but he was serious. He took this very literally and serious, seriously to be separate from the world. But yet, we have probably the better examples, definitely the better examples than people like Joseph, who, who served his God in the midst of an immoral Egyptian government under Pharaoh, or Daniel, who served the Lord under the Medes and Persians, who were also very immoral. And yet they, they shined as lights. Esther shined as a light. And so their names are recorded for us in scriptures. It can be done, no matter how wicked the world is around us. And so we become witnesses to the world when we shine our lights in this generation. Jesus told us, he says, uh, uh, let your lights shine. Don't hide them under a bushel. Uh, it's our, our faith ought to be on display for others unashamedly. And not that we have to push it on people's in, in their face, but in such a way that they see that we are different and that light may be something that they need to see their own situation. So he says, uh, shine as lights in the word, holding fast the word of life. Holding fast. Now, some Bibles say holding forth the word of life. Probably the better translation, in my opinion, is holding fast, holding strongly to the word of God, the word that brings us this life, um, so that he can rejoice in the day of Christ. The uh, day of Christ here, I believe, refer, refers to that time when we will be with the Lord, face him at his coming, the day of Christ the rapture, uh, the judgment seat of Christ happening at that time. And that day, he wants to be able to rejoice that they were faithfully holding on to the word of God. And then he will see that he did not run in vain or labor in vain. That phrase, in vain, has the idea of uh, something being useless or not reaching its goal or uh, not fulfilling its purpose. And Paul wanted to be able to rejoice in that day at the judgment seat of Christ when we stand there together that, that uh, his efforts, his, what he poured into the Philippians uh, paid off for them and for him. And his efforts were not fruitless or pointless. And verse 17, we see how, how much he did care about them and how he poured his life out for them when he says, yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering 
on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now, a drink offering is something that was actually uh, the Old Testament described drink offerings. They're poured on the ground. And uh, the pagan cults have drink offerings as well. They pour libations or alcohol or something on the, onto the ground as an offering. I've seen it actually done in Africa, too. They pour libations, alcohol on the grave, <clears throat> graves of their ancestors. So a drink offering is something that's common, well-known throughout many centuries and many cultures. The thing about a, a drink offering that's different, though, is like when you sacrifice a lamb, you can, you can at least eat the lamb and there's some usefulness out of it. When you pour libation on the ground, you can't suck it back out with a straw. It's gone forever. And Paul says, I poured out my life like a drink offering for you guys. In other words, he can't get it back. He spent it on them. It cost him everything, and he was happy to do so. It was a sacrifice for the sacrifice and service of your faith in order to um, show his sacrifice, and because of their sacrifice, he wanted to serve them with his life. And uh, so he says, I am glad and I rejoice with you, with you all. And for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. For the same reason indicates that uh, there was sacrifice on their part, and they were also pouring themselves out for him, as we'll see examples from Titus and Timoth Epaphroditus, Timothy and Epaphroditus in the next paragraphs that we cover. <clears throat> there were those who lived sacrificially for the Lord and sacrificed themselves for Paul's benefit, and um, they cared for him. And uh, they were praying for him. They were concerned, uh, visited him in prison and so forth. And so he commends them for this sacrificial lifestyle that they've shown so far as having the mind of Christ. And that bring, brings him joy. And he says that should bring you joy too. So you should rejoice with me. So Paul is not telling them to work out their own salvation or earn their salvation. He's telling them to let your salvation work itself out or bear fruit or bring your life to its full purpose of sacrificial service, humility, obedience to God. Um, the word work is probably used because, you know, it is work. Uh, in a sense, to follow God's will and to do his will. Um, Paul talks about laboring, and he uses the word strive in some places, persevering. Um, on the other hand, we know that when we trust in Jesus Christ as our resource, as our power, that the work is not so hard. In fact, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so when we let him shoulder the responsibility for the things that we know we should be doing, it becomes much lighter of a load to do. But yet he allows us to struggle in this world because it makes us stronger. It teaches us things. You know, when I remember in grade school when we were, would do the little incubator with the chicken eggs and the chicken would start pecking itself out, usually took five or six hours to peck its way out, I think. And the temptation is always for us to go in there, you know, and help it out. Hate to see this little thing struggle and work so hard. Let, let, let's, let me chip some of the shells away. And I remember our teacher 
uh, saying, no, no, you can't do that. This is how the chicken develops and how it gets strong and, and, and makes the transition into this world. It's got to fight its way out of that shell. Like a caterpillar's got to fight its way out of the chrysalis to become a butterfly. You and I also struggle through this life with God's help to work out our salvation, which makes us stronger and holier and more obedient and more pleasing to God. But we could say in that sense, it is work. So how our salvation works out and affects others is what we've been talking about. We've each been given a rich inheritance in this life or the promise and or the promise of inheritance in the future. God has invested everything in us. He himself poured himself out, we could say as a drink offering for us. He gave his life for us. And what we do with the life that he's given back to us uh, is how we work out our salvation in the midst of this generation and show ourselves to be followers of him, lights in a dark world. We, del we deliver ourselves in a, in a wicked and perverse generation. From Paul certainly has in mind all the adversaries that are surrounding them, and he wants them to show that they have victory over them. So what we do today makes a difference to God and to you and to those around you. And we only have a short time to work on it. We don't know how long before the Lord comes, but he reminds us that the day of the Lord is coming. And so I wonder, how is it working out for you? How are you working out your salvation? Are others seeing it? Are you living obediently for the Lord? Are you living in submission to him and in humility towards others? Are you striving to have the mind of Christ? Are you absorbing his word? Are you spending time with him uh, privately and communicating to him and talking to him and absorbing his will through his word and, and prayer? Are you sharing your faith with others? Are you learning to live obediently? How's it working out for you? Well, we work out our own salvation, though, in cooperation with God. We're not left to do it by ourselves. And because he says it's God who's working in us. And that's the good news, is that we're not left to do it by ourselves. What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. Not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ who lives in me. And so really, maybe the key to working out our salvation is just getting out of the way and letting Christ live his life through us. Just get out of the way. Jesus is in us. Let people see Jesus in us. And then we will live a victorious life over all the naysayers, accusers, negative people, God-rejectors, all the darkness and perversions of this culture and society will shine like lights when we hold fast to the Word of God and let Jesus shine through us. And then that day, when you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 
We trust that we will rejoice with one another. Those who have put into your life will rejoice, and those to whom you have put your life upon whom you have spilt out your life on them will also rejoice before the Lord. So what is clear today from our passage is that the understanding that you can work for your salvation is not being taught here at all. He's talking about working out what's already in us. There are so many people who believe that you have to work to do, to accomplish, or to achieve, or to earn your eternal salvation. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. And so if you are struggling trying to earn your salvation, I've got news for you. You can never do enough to earn your salvation. You can never be good enough. You can never change enough behavior. You can never make enough promises or commitments to God. You'll break them eventually. Everything in your salvation, the work has already been done in Jesus Christ as indicated by what he said on the cross when he said, it is finished. He worked for our salvation. We do not work for our salvation. In order to be saved then, we put our faith in Jesus Christ who did the work for us and rose from the dead and then promised us eternal life if we would just trust in what he's done instead of what we can do. And so that's the invitation for any who are listening today is to trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done, the work that he has done, and not in your own work. And so let me pray and thank God for that work that he's done. And Lord, I do lift up to you any who might hear the sound of my voice and think that they can earn or work their way to salvation. What a futile attempt that will be and what frustration that brings. Help them to see that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, and he paid the price on the cross for every one of my sins, past, present, and future, rose from the dead, and then holds out to us a free gift of eternal life if we would just receive that gift through faith. Faith in what he's done. And may there be someone today who understands for the first time that they cannot earn or work for their salvation. And then us who have that salvation, help us to work it out by showing the world that we live above the world. We live victoriously in Jesus Christ uh, by our attitudes and by our obedience to what he has said and done. So thank you for the passage of Scripture today that challenges us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.